The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want to begin my sermon today by saying that I am thankful for the responses that I received to last week's message. Uh, in that message, I showed how we can prove the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. You're not to believe a doctrine just because I say that it's true, but you should be able to take your Bible, to read it, and find these things that I preach about, and uh, understand that we get our doctrine from the Word of God, and that's the only place that we get it. And so if I say it, I want it to be proved by the Scriptures. I've already prepared several messages on the seventh church of Asia, that is the church at Laodicea, and in each of them I, I want to repeatedly make this point that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's the only source for our doctrine. Now, with that in mind, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. And today we begin a study of the last letter to the seven churches of Asia. And these letters were written to seven historical first century churches. They are intended to represent the spiritual condition of churches in all ages. The seventh church is the church at Laodicea, which is the one that I believe is the most characteristic of churches nearing the time of Christ's return. There have been churches like this one that we're going to read about in all ages since the time of Christ. There was one in the first century, and where there's one, there are surely more. But as an apocalyptic marker, the condition of the churches at the Lord's return will be that of people that will not endure sound doctrine. It's people that will embrace false teachers. It will be people living in and accepting the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then another characteristic of that time, an interesting one, is that it will be a time of greed. A time when uh, greed will pervade Christian ministries. And please understand, when I, when I use the term Christian, I'm using that term in just a very generic worldly sense. It's not true Christianity, but refers to those who use Christ's name, but they don't actually have a relationship with Him. So this Christian church, so to speak, is doctrinally weak, it is immoral, and it's greedy, and their gospel does not resemble the gospel of Christ. The gospel that they teach is a gospel that pleases self. It's a gospel that says, I am number one. I'm the one that must be lifted up. And then it adds this little, this uh, little marker to it that God wants me to be rich. And if I'm not rich, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong with my faith. Maybe I'm not a true Christian at all because God definitely wants people to be rich. Interestingly, the Laodicean church said, we are rich we are increased with goods. And that saying has both physical and spiritual components. I'd like to read the text of the letter in just a moment, but before we do, I want you to put your finger in this text. Just hold on to it for a second and go back to the book of Colossians, a few books before this. 
uh, to the letter to the Colossians. And I want you to look there. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church. And we're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 4. That's at the end of the letter where Paul signs off here. Colossians chapter 4. Notice what he says to this church, to the church at Colossae. Verse 16. And when this epistle... Epistle just means letter. This is a letter. When this letter is read among you, that is among the Colossian church, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. There was a close association that existed between the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea. These are two churches that are very, very close together, not far apart at all. Maybe we might say as far as from here to Windsor. So they're really close churches. And this, this uh, letter that Paul wrote to Colossae appears to represent the same kinds of problems that were present in the church at Laodicea. But the difference in these two churches are that there was a different response to the letters that Paul wrote. The Colossae church listened to what Paul said, but the Laodicean church did not. Now the Laodicean church has the distinction uh, of being a metaphor for lost church members. So if you're referred to as a Laodicean Christian, that's not good. Even though it's a biblical a biblical description, a Laodicean Christian is not good. On the other hand, if you're called a Berean, that's very good. If you're a Berean, that's very good. That's a high compliment. But if you're a Laodicean, that is a true problem. Now in the last, uh, or in the list rather, the seven churches, this is the last one. This is the church at the bottom of the barrel, down where all the dregs have settled. This is a, a church in a world that's that's filled, a world is filled with these types of churches. This is, these are churches that are uh, waiting for the apocalypse. And the Laodicean church was down at the bottom and they were so unspiritual they had no idea where they were. They thought they were the cream that was at the top, but they're actually the junk that settled down to the bottom. This is the church upside down from where the Lord wants His church to be. And so if you took the other six churches and you turned them upside down and you shook out all the good things that are there, what's left would be settling down into this church at Laodicea. Now this is what the Spirit says to the church at Laodicea. Verse number 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Last week we finished the exposition of the sixth letter. This was the church at Philadelphia. And the letter to the Laodicean stands in a, in a stark contrast to that one. Philadelphia was the good church. It was the blessed church. It, it, it's the model church because the Lord commended them without even offering a single word of rebuke. Two churches in these seven, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were good churches, while the others were in this steady, spiraling downward path towards the worst, and that is Laodicea. From Ephesus, that first church, to Laodicea, the left, is a, is a downward trend showing what happens when the church loses its love for Christ. Ephesus was a church that lost its love. And from there, the errors compound in these churches until finally there's a church that looks nothing at all like Christ. There's a lingering question about Laodicea, and it's a hard one. Is this still a church? Were there any saved people there? Are we looking at a church that's a church in name only? Because without saved people, you can't have a church. So we have a bit of a theological and ecclesiastical problem of interpretation. Is this a church that's on its last leg of existence, or is this a church that's actually not a church any longer? And did Christ send this letter to let everybody know that he didn't recognize this church as his? And all the other churches should read this letter and they should heed lest they also fall into the same conditions that the Laodiceans were. Did he intend to tell others that they should break any remaining fellowship that they had with this church? You see, each of the churches were able to read the letters that were sent to the others. And this is a crucial point for us because we are, we're commanded in the scriptures to separate from heretical churches. The poison of a heretical church will eventually kill us. Their disease of apostasy will infect us. And we're not to touch the unfruitful works of darkness. And I'll tell you again that I believe this Laodicean church is indicative, more indicative of churches in the last times before Jesus comes than all the others. And there are churches in Ronard Park and in Santa Rosa that in no way that we would be able to approve and say, these are churches of Jesus Christ, of the true living God. And so the question is, are we to cooperate with them? Are we to join with them? Are we to get in locked in the common causes with people that are not true believers in Christ? Well, I think not. Rather, we're to do what the Scriptures do. We're to warn people. Sometimes that means calling them by name, just as... Jesus and the apostles did. So put this into a modern context, and what we would read here is Jesus saying, you know that Laodicean church? Stay away from them. Don't go over there. Don't be a part of that. And then further, he goes on to say, let me tell you what's wrong with them. And that's what he does in this letter. In fact, he does that in seven letters, telling us who we are to accept and who we are to reject. And so we must warn people not to be caught up in a false Christianity. And I believe that I can show you through this letter why a false Christianity is more dangerous to the church 
than any other religion. Even atheism is not as bad as those who claim to be Christians and call themselves a church, but they're not really a church. Now, in this letter, we discover the disaster of the false Christian. The false Christian is complacent. He's content with where he is spiritually. The false Christians are satisfied to think everything's fine, I'm doing well, and that makes them insensitive to the truth when they hear it. So you can mark this down. A church in that condition cannot locate the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, you look at the Philadelphia church, they're the blessed church. They're walking closely with the Lord. They didn't deny His name and they kept the faith. And so what does the Lord say to Philadelphia? He says to them, I'm with you. I'm working with you. He made promises to increase their work for Him. And He tells them that He will protect them and He'll make them pillars in the temple of God. And so there's a sense that this true church, this good church, is locked in with Jesus Christ. They're tuned in. I don't know how many of you know the song, My God and I. But there's a line in that song that says, My God and I go in the field together. We walk and talk as good friends should and do. There's a sense of that in Philadelphia, but there is no sense of it in Laodicea. They didn't walk with the Lord. They weren't in the field together. They weren't even on the same farm together. Now notice where we can locate Jesus in Laodicea. If you look at verse number 20, where is Jesus in that verse? He's on the outside. They left him outside of the door, and he's outside knocking on the door, and, and they don't hear. Oh, he can peek through the windows, and he can see activity going on. He can see them laughing and talking and rocking out to their praise band. But they have no sense at all that they've left Jesus behind. In the church at Philadelphia, it talks about the key of David. But this key of David doesn't fit the lock on the Laodicean door. This is a door that has to be broken down before Christ gains entrance. They've shut him out and they won't let him in. And I think that I can explain to you the doctrinal inferences of this door that Jesus stands outside of, and I promise we'll do that before these messages are over. Now, the exposition of this letter will follow the pattern of the others, but we have one exception. Each letter has at least one commendation. Some of them have many more. But when we get to that part in Laodicea where we're looking for commendations, we'll be twiddling our thumbs because there aren't any. We won't have anything to talk about. So how, how is it then that they could be a church if there's nothing good? Isn't the church of the Lord Jesus Christ something that's good? Aren't believers in Jesus Christ, haven't they been changed and haven't they been redeemed? Haven't they been purified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Aren't they good in Jesus Christ? And yet as he looks at this church, he finds nothing good. Now this exposition will have all the points of the others, but that one. This one has all the points, but I don't promise you we're going to take them all in the same order. This time, we're going to start at the end of the letter. And then we'll come back to the beginning. And you'll understand why I do this in just a moment. Now first, in your outline, the first one we're going to talk about today is the desire of the amen. The desire of the amen. I'm going to start with Jesus standing on the outside of the church. He's on the outside of the church. 
Now, he wrote the letter, and in the beginning of the letter, in verse number 14, Jesus is the Amen. And the desire of the Amen is to rake this church and to shame them and to warn them, but then finally to save them. The desire in the end is to save them, but not before he sets a dynamite charge and blows the doors off of the church. There is no one who comes to Jesus Christ without being told they're worthless sinners. There's nobody who comes who doesn't stop relying on self and recognizes that they are helpless. There is nobody who comes to Christ until he's at the door with a desire to come in. Now we're going to look at verse number 20 later. I just want you to know that all the bad stuff, all the harsh Harsh treatment at the beginning of this letter will finally lead to a compassionate Christ desiring to save them even though there's nothing in them worth saving. And I hope that you understand that that is the way that Christ looks at each of us. There is nothing in us worth saving. There's nothing in us that is valuable. Christ won't mine us and find anything that's valuable. He doesn't come to get what you have. He comes to replace everything that you are. And He'll make you what He wants you to be. So you don't worry about polishing a few things off and then giving them to Jesus because you don't have anything to offer that He wants. Now in this 14th verse, beginning the letter, there's this familiar form of a description of Christ. Only this description is not as familiar as the others, I don't think. He says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write... These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. In each of the letters, there is a description of Christ that's like signing his name. That's the form of a first century letter. You signed your name at the beginning, not at the end. And each time that you see a description of Christ, that's the signature. And it tells them that the one who wrote the letter is God. He is God. Have you heard me say that before? Jesus Christ is God. And five of these letters have a description of Him as God taken from the first chapter in this book. Now, interestingly, the best church, Philadelphia, didn't have a description from the first chapter. And then the last one, Laodicea, didn't have a description that comes from the first chapter. Instead, two new descriptions are given. In Philadelphia... Christ is holy and true, and both of those are Old Testament references specifically relating to Christ as Jehovah God. Now, we never fail to mention the times that Jesus says that He is God, and we can't pass over all those times. We can't overlook the times that Jesus says He is God because false Christianity won't let us. We have to repeat it because there are so many people that don't know that, that they don't believe that Jesus is actually God. Christianity is plagued with cults. And the error always, almost always, almost without exception, is an error about the deity of Jesus Christ. And so a, a cult might well contain this definition, this description, this prevalent marker that a cult denies the full deity of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah Witnesses are a cult because they deny that Jesus is Jehovah God. The Mormons are a cult because they believe that Jesus was created. 
I can take you back to David Koresh in the early 90s and his group, the Branch Davidians. Do you remember them? Koresh claimed to be the Messiah. You know how that turned out. That was a huge debacle as the FBI and the ATF burned his compound with him and his people in it. It was a cult. And the error was an error about the deity of Christ. And so the cults follow this pattern, always mistaking the identity of Christ, so that if he was to show up at their door today, they would never recognize him. The cult error gives us some insight into the Laodicean error. And this may be the reason for this peculiar introduction by Christ, where he said, I am the Amen, the faithful and true witness. Now before I continue... There may be some of you that are unfamiliar with some of the terminology in these verses. Each one, each letter, begins with unto the angel of the church. And when it says angel, it's not talking about a supernatural creature. Angel is a word that simply means messenger. In this context, it just means a messenger. Angelos is the Greek word. It means the messenger. And, and the messenger of the church is the pastor. And I point that out again today because the pastor bears a tremendous responsibility to be right about Christ. What he preaches from the pulpit will save people or it will condemn people. And so nobody ought to mess with the message of Christ. So the letter comes to the Angelos, the pastor of the church, and Jesus says, this, these things said the Amen. Well, that's an odd description, isn't it? He is the Amen. Why does he say, I am the Amen? Well, you have to put it with the next part to understand it. He is the faithful and true witness. Now take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65. As you know, there are many messianic references in Isaiah. I alluded to that a moment ago in our congregational reading. We get a good understanding of many things in Revelation from Isaiah. Chapter 4 in Revelation, for instance, is a, a look at, a, a repeat of uh, what's described in Isaiah chapter 6, the throne room of God. The key of David that we talked about with the Philadelphia church, that's in Revelation 3, the first part of it, that also comes out of Isaiah. Christ's claim to holiness is in Isaiah. His claim to be Jehovah God is in Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 16 is probably the reference for the Amen of Revelation 3.14. Now, if you'll look in Isaiah 65, starting in verse 14, Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay thee, and call his servants by another name that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from my eyes. Now the important part that I want you to see is the God of truth and swear by the God of truth. Amen is a word that's used to affirm truth. When God speaks, he always speaks truth. Now think about what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying that he is self-affirming. As God, he is self-affirming. He doesn't need you to put a seal of approval on him. He doesn't need you to tell him that what he says is right. He will always approve himself. 
Jesus says that He is truth. And He affirms that He is truth by Himself. That is, He's, he's His own witness. Only God can witness of Himself. And only God can ask for no higher authority to approve Him. So if Jesus says something, I'm not going to go to the Pope and ask Him if Jesus is right. Well, that would sound silly. Isn't that silly to think that you would go to the Pope and say, did, did, did what Jesus said, is that right or is that wrong? And the Pope would say, no, that's wrong. You wouldn't go to the Pope, would you? And yet, did you know that the Pope recently said that Jesus didn't know how to say what he meant? Early last month, the Pope said that the words of the Lord's Prayer need to be changed. Jesus prayed to the Father, and he said, lead us not into temptation. And we've read that for over 400 years in the English translations. We've learned it, we've memorized it, we've quoted it millions of times, but the Pope said that's not right. The Father doesn't lead us into temptation. He said it's Satan who leads into temptation. Now never mind that there is no hermeneutical textual evidence to change the English translation. There is no manuscript that says differently, but the Pope said he doesn't like it. And he said it's wrong. In other words, he wants to correct the words of Christ rather than to correct his understanding of what Christ said. So he thinks that he can correct Christ because Catholicism believes they are above the Scriptures. And I would propose to you that's a pretty good idea of Laodicea. That's a Laodicean church. That's a church that doesn't need Christ. They have an Angelos who believes that he's above God. So let's just leave Christ on the outside knocking. We don't need him. We have our creeds and we have our traditions and we have our sacraments and we have the Mass. Why do we need Christ to come along and mess all of that up? Now I want to remind you and the Pope, if he's listening to the Berean Baptist podcast, that Jesus is self-affirming. He is the Amen. There's no authority higher than Him that can disprove His words. Amen is a Hebrew word. It gets into the English pronounced Amen. In Hebrew, it's Amen. Now, if you look at Isaiah 65, verse 16 again, each time that you see truth in the text, God of truth, swear by the God of truth, that word is actually Amen. When Jesus said, I am Amen, He's saying, I am the God of truth. I am the self-affirming God of truth. That's the same word translated in the New Testament in our King James Version as verily. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, and that is truly, truly, I say to you. When I'm preaching and you think that I've made a worthy comment, some of you will say, Amen just as you did a moment ago. That's the same. That's an affirmation of truth. Swear by the God of truth, as it says in Isaiah 65. And that's what Jesus does. He swears by Himself that He is the God of truth. Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because He could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself. Now, to Mr. Jehovah Witness, Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham. I am Jehovah. There's no greater than Jesus Christ. He said, I am the Amen. And the idea is that everything that God says is certain. 
Hebrews 6.17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show into the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath. God swore an oath that it's self-affirmed, self-witnessed. Everything that He says is concrete, certain. But more than the fact that it's certain, the certainty of God's oaths becomes certain to us in only one way, in Jesus Christ. Paul explained that creation witnesses the reality of God, but it doesn't tell you how to contact God. Natural revelation, what you see around it, out, around us, is not enough to tell you who God is. How do we get to God? Well, there's only one way that you can, and that's through Jesus Christ. You can't discover the reason for your existence without going to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did God make you? Why are you here? That's in the gospel. And the gospel is the truth. So you don't want to go around messing with and adjusting the words of Christ. God's promise, His oath, comes true in Christ. And amazingly, the Bible says it exactly that way in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God in Him are yea and in Him amen. Under the glory of God by us. God the Father sent His Son as an affirmation of the promises that he made to us. You remember, uh, I preached about the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15 at Christmas time. How will we be saved? The curse of the Adamic nature is lifted through Christ, who is the seed of the woman. So when God sent Jesus to Bethlehem, and there he was born in Bethlehem, he affirmed that the curse would be lifted by the Amen the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus is that faithful and true witness of God's promise. He affirms that what God says will happen. Now I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 7. We're getting a, a Bible workout today because uh, what I say I want to be affirmed by the Scriptures. And at the end of Matthew 7, Jesus had just finished preaching his marvelous exposition of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. The people couldn't believe what they heard because what Jesus said was so radically different from what they'd been taught. They were, they were used to the scribes and the Pharisees affirming their own righteousness and Jesus came and said, well, that righteousness is not good enough. You've got to have more than their righteousness. And this is what they thought of his sermon when they heard these things. They thought the Pharisees are right. These are the people of God. But in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And what's the difference between Jesus' authority and the scribes? Well, the scribes were always quoting somebody else. They gave an opinion of the Scriptures and they said, now here is what Rabbi Hillel has to say about this. And then another would disagree. And they would say, no, this is what Rabbi Shammai says about this. And Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel don't agree. And those were actually the two different schools of thought in that time. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And the scribes were always looking for some authority, somebody to quote to affirm them. And it had been that way as long as any of them could remember. It was always that way. It's like if I said, now here is what John MacArthur says about this. And you say, no, that's not right. Here's what Joel Osteen says about it. And those two things are not going to agree. 
So what if we just leave both of them out and we just go to Jesus and ask Him? Let's just go to what Jesus said. And so Jesus began to preach and He never quoted anybody. He never asked anybody to ratify anything that He said. And so the people said, well, He teaches as somebody who has authority, not as the scribes. And that was radically different. Six times in the sermon, He said, you have heard that it hath been said. And who said it? All the scribes did, and the people the scribes quoted. And then Jesus said, but I say unto you. And so He said, throw out the scribes' opinions And then with nobody to back him up, Jesus said, this is what I say. Now let's look at this in chapter 5. You go open to Matthew now, look at chapter 5, and I'll just give you a sampling of these six times. In Matthew 5, verse number 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. Who? All the scribes and the people they quoted. You've always heard this. Thou shalt not kill... And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Go down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time. By who? By the scribes and the people they quoted. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's one of the reasons I read John chapter 8 at the beginning, the call to worship. The woman taken into adultery. Oh, they they were committers of adultery themselves, because they thought, they thought, they thought, even though they might not have actually done the deed. Verse number 31. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Who did Jesus quote on that? Nobody. He affirmed it with his own words. He testified to it by himself, because God can swear by no greater. And folks, by the way, the words that the Pope wants to change, do you know they're in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6? Isn't that a hoot? Jesus said, but I say unto you. Now the Pope comes along and says, that's not right. That's not right. I say to you that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me fix the Lord's Prayer for you. By whose authority will he change the words? Oh, he's infallible, isn't he? Catholic Church says that he is. I think I'll stick with Jesus, thank you. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. When he knocks on the door, you better listen to what he says. Just just as he reversed the interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees, what he will do here with the Laodicean church and with that church today who tries to do this, he will reverse everything that they say because the highest authority comes from him. Now let me say another word about amen. Amen is like saying, that's right, that's the truth. Do you think there's anything wrong with saying amen when the preacher says something that's right? Now, I'm not trying to get more amens. I'm just asking a question. Do you you think there's anything wrong with that? 
Do I actually need you to tell me that it's the truth? Will I change what I preach? Whether you say amen or oh me? Well, will you say what you say is not going to add to the truth? It can't change the truth. So why would you say amen? Well, I think you do because you want to affirm that you believe that it's true. You want, to, you want people to know, people around you, that you believe that's true. And that's good. That's a great testimony. We affirm these truths of the Word of God. And so we want everybody to know that we agree. And maybe you want me to know that you agree. So let me ask you a question. At the end of our congregational reading, I say, this is the Word of God. And so why do some say, we don't need to say that. We already know that it's the Word of God. You know, Eric explained all that to us a few weeks ago. He said it's all part of the post-Catholic stress disorder that some of you are suffering from. And I know that you need therapy about that, and I'm just trying to help you through it a little bit. So, so I want to sit with you, and I want to hold your hand, and I want to calm you down a bit as gently as I can and tell you that the Roman Catholics do not own the phrase, this is the Word of God. Do the Catholics say amen? I think they do. I think they do. So should we stop saying amen? This is the Word of God is an amen. That's an affirmation. We agree with the Bible that it's the Word of God. Now the difference between us and the Pope is we actually believe that it is the Word of God. And because it is, we're not going to try and change it. So for those suffering from PCSD, post-Catholic stress disorder, uh, I want you to do something that will help you. I want you to go home and read some chapters in your Bible, maybe just one chapter every day. And after you're finished reading that chapter, I want you to say, this is the Word of God. Amen. And you do that, and then next week when you come back, you'll feel a lot better. You'll feel okay when I say it on Sunday. Now, here, here's the thing. Many churches are Laodicean churches, and they stopped reading the Word of God a long, long time ago. So they don't ask you to bring a Bible to church, and they'll look at you funny if you do. Why do you need a Bible if nobody's going to read it? So when they come here, and we read the Bible, when we start the, the services, I read the Bible before we sing, and then in the middle of the singing, we stop and we read the Bible again, and then I start to preach the sermon, and I take you all over the Scriptures, all over the Bible, then I think that somebody might get the picture that we really do believe. This is the Word of God. Now let's go back to Revelation 3. Jesus said He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and He said He is the beginning of the creation of God. Many commentators say that's ambiguous in English. It leaves us struggling for the right interpretation because it could mean that Jesus was the first thing that was created or it could mean that he is the creator, the one who created all things. Now, we're, we're out of time, so I want to give you some homework. While you're reading those chapters that I said that you should read this week and you're learning to calm yourself about saying this is the Word of God, I want you to think, how will we determine... Which of these two meanings explain what Jesus meant? Did he mean that he was created at the beginning, or did he mean that he was the creator at the beginning? Did he mean that he was a creature or the creator? 
So if this wording is ambiguous, is there anything in the Bible that will clear up that ambiguity? So this is your homework assignment. And then trust me, folks, a little bit of homework's not going to hurt you. Then next week we're going to come back to this, and I'm going to show you how the Colossian letter may have bearing on the heresy of Laodicea. And it caused Paul, at the end of the Colossian letter, say, make sure that you read this letter to Laodicea. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now let me say just one word, one more word, and we'll be done. There are many ways to approach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's only one gospel, but there are multiple ways to arrive at the truth of the gospel. Now, if we didn't have many approaches, then, then I could prepare just one sermon. And I would get up every Sunday, and I would preach one sermon. That one sermon, that's all I would ever preach. And that would be really easy for me. I could do that, but I'm happy that Christ said that He is God, and that He is our Savior, and He said it in multiple ways. It's all over the Bible. So I have a Bible that I can read and I can search and I can find the wonders of Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our God. And I have many sermons to preach. No matter where I go in the Bible, I will find Jesus. So I don't understand why Laodicean churches don't use the Bible. There's nothing else that will lead them to salvation and eternal life than the Bible and to find Jesus in the Bible. So if you happen to be in a church and it seems odd to carry a Bible to church, get out of that church. Stay away from it because it's poison. Christ isn't in that church. He's on the outside looking in. And if you stay, you'll be poisoned until you die. The Laodicean church is not a church of Jesus Christ, so we'll warn you about it. Salvation is in Christ alone. Where do I get the truth of that statement? This is the Word of God. Amen. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have provided a way for us to go to heaven. It's not our way. It's not something we invented. It is the self-affirmed Word of Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Lord, we thank you that you sent us that way. and said all that a lost sinner need do is repent of his sins and trust Jesus Christ and he will save us and take us to heaven. Lord, we thank you for that promise and we thank you that it is you made the promise and affirmed it in your own son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, you'd speak to the heart of some person today who hasn't realized this truth, who maybe doesn't know very much about the Bible and hasn't really read much or had much confidence at all, not knowing that the Bible is the self-affirmed Word of God as Christ is the self-affirmed Son of God and Savior of the world. Lord, we pray that you would open hearts to that truth today. And as Christians, draw us closer to you through your Word. And may we be students of your Word, read your Word, study your Word, make it our life every single day. Thank you, Lord, for these things. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.